0: No, <laughs> uh, n- never. No one's ever said that,
1: right? Yeah, I, I, for me, I think this is one of the 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 things that being a veteran really helps with, right? I think that when you think about you know, some of the greatest times in in modern history, you know, back in 1953 to 1970, we had between 62 and I think like 74 percent veterans in Congress. Now we have 17 percent veterans in Congress, you know, and you you, you think about. You know, everyone talks about, hey, I, I want somebody that has good values to go to Congress. And to me, you know, veterans are instilled with values throughout your, your sort of military experience, right? I mean, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage, things like that, hard work. And you have that beaten into your head and, because they know that in combat, those values are going to be tested. And you can pretty much count on when a veteran comes out of that experience that they've been tested and that when they're under extreme pressure, extreme duress, they're going to do the right thing. And so that, that's where, you know, there's a lot of veterans in this race. I think there's four, maybe five, but I, I think there's a case to be made for voting for veterans just broadly and getting people that have the the personal courage and integrity to do the right thing in Washington, right? I mean, like. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann.
0: Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this podcast and series, go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an ED from my fellow Marines out there that we're not always spelling things correctly or missing the end of things. myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on podcasts. When you click on podcasts, you can download these on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, and you can even click read more about great guests like I have today. Michael Egan Big Mike How are you doing? I'm doing well Thank
1: you very much for having me I really appreciate it Man, Very excited to be here
0: I, I, am, I am really excited And before I do these I, I gotta do I gotta do a joke Because my father-in-law says I gotta do a joke And on purpose I pick bad jokes I love it I yeah. love it Are you ready for this one? Now You being An Army veteran I think you would Have an appreciation for this one Do you want to know How bad my cooking is? I do. Absolutely. My kids thought that it was Thanksgiving that Thanksgiving was to commensurate Pearl Harbor. <laughs> that came out bad. I I I wrote it so bad that I can't even read my own handwriting that I probably totally yeah. Anyhow, like my 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 cooking is worse than Pearl Harbor. But actually it's not. It's cause I do all the cooking <laughs> in my house, right? I knew I all the cooking. Mike my, my when when our daughter would see my, my wife cook, she's like, uh, if it's not one of these five dishes, can you just let dad do it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Too funny.
0: Yeah. Too so, funny. Yeah. So what do you prefer going by for for the audience out there? Michael, Mike? I mean, what's I go by Mike. Uh Michael's what my mom uh used to call me when I was in trouble. So, okay. uh,
1: you know, just the triggers sort of uh the, the deer and headlights look. So I just go I go by Mike. It's yeah. easy, easy enough.
0: So for for let's let's talk about the audiences. Well, First off, my connection, and I'm just going to start this off as, you know, my show is not meant to really break down and dive into topics of politics, gender, or religion. So I'm sure there's some listeners out there today going to say, oh, you're a hypocrite because you brought somebody on that's running for office and so forth. And really, that's not what this episode is about. This episode is talking about the incredible journey that Mike has had And where he's come from, what he's gone through, where he's at today. So for all you haters out there, I don't care what you think. Everybody knows that already. So so now, Mike, what is it that you are currently doing?
1: So I am currently running for office in Congressional District 6 here in Texas. I'm a Republican candidate. I'm running because the American government's not working for the American people anymore, in my opinion. And a lot of folks I talk to seem to think the same thing. And I want to go to Washington and make sure the government works for the people again. You know, for me, there's a few kind of key issues out there that, that would love to take care of early on. You know, border security, election integrity. I think our economic dependence on China needs to be reduced. I think we need to get people back out there working in our small businesses and and make sure that our small businesses can thrive after we sort of come out of COVID and, and get that critical mass of vaccinations out there. But that's sort of the headline level. I know we're not here to talk about politics, but that's sort of just what's going on.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, when, when someone hears, hey, I want to go do right in Washington, they haven't heard that before, right? No, uh, <laughs> n- never. No one's ever said that, right? Yeah. I, I, for
1: me, I think this is one of the, the, the things that being a veteran really helps with, right? I think that when you think about you know, some of the greatest times in, in modern history, you know, back in 1953 to 1970, we had between 62 and I think like 74% veterans in Congress. Now we have 17% veterans in Congress, you know, and you, you, you think about, you know, everyone talks about, hey, I, I want somebody that has good values to go to Congress, And to me, you know, veterans are instilled with values throughout your, your sort of military experience, right? I mean, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage, things like that, hard work. And you have that beaten into your head because they they know that in combat, those values are going to be tested. And you can pretty much count on when a veteran comes out of that experience that they've been tested and that when they're under extreme pressure, extreme duress, they're going to do the right thing. And so that that's where, you know, there's a lot of veterans in this race. Uh, I think there's four, maybe five, but I, I think there's a case to be made for voting for veterans just broadly and getting people that have the, the personal courage and integrity to do the right thing in Washington, right? I mean, like you said, there's a lot of people that say, hey, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to do all the right things. And then People are often disappointed because all they do is vote no on the other party's bills or, you know, join the right clubs and associate with the right people. But I, I think that's, I think what we're seeing today is that that's just not good enough anymore, right? That's just not what, what, you know, really keeps this country together and moving forward. And, and so I think that, you know, for me, I am pretty passionate about this because I, I just, it's a country that I love, a country we've fought for, Right and it's sort of tearing itself apart right now. And we really need to do some reconciliation and, and repair things, you know?
0: Yeah. And and, and when, you know, and you hear somebody saying, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go change things. And what's funny is when most of the time somebody's running for office, you don't really know the background and the history of that person and their journeys and their trials and tribulations. Cause I'm sure you got to where you're at because you did everything right. Didn't you? Right. There was no, there, I mean, there was no, there was no pain involved or, mistakes or failures that came along the way to learn from or none, none, no, <laughs>
1: just absolutely flawless life. No, no. Yeah. I, so many failures, failures are our best teacher. I think, I think Yoda said that quote, a great, uh, great movie character, but, but no, yeah, I've, I've definitely had my fair share of failures along the way. And in many instances, those made me more successful, you know, as, as an infantry officer, when I first joined the, uh, the army, I was an infantry officer. And after you go through infantry basic, you go to Ranger School as an officer. It's uh, it, it it signals a certain degree of competence to your to your men. And and when I went in after nine eleven, you know, it was really critical because you knew you were going to be taking your platoon over to to war to Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever. And I actually failed Ranger School, failed it. Showed up to my first unit without a Ranger tab. You know, there's a lot of people that will fail Ranger School and they'll say, oh, it's, a, it's the Ranger instructor was out to get me and. And, you know, I just got, you know, totally screwed over. But for me, I, I really learned a, a valuable lesson, I think, about myself. And, and that at the time, I, I wasn't the leader that I could or should be, right? I, I think I was not as good of a team player as I could or should have been. And in many ways, it is, I think, pretty rare for an officer uh, that came from the infantry without a, a ranger tab to actually get into special forces to get selected, right? But, but for me... I came out of that experience, that failure, and I said, I, well, first of all, I was scared to death because I was about to take a platoon to Iraq, and I was like, you know, what does this say about my competence and my ability to lead these troops? So it just made me double down on hard work and making sure that I was prepared, my men were prepared, and we were ready to go overseas. And I think that the fact that I, I took that failure and made myself better from it, just sort of carried through. And, and at various stages when I've, when I've failed, I think I, I get very reflective. I'm actually pretty hard on myself overall. And so when I, when I fail, I'm like, all right, what did I do wrong? Or well, what can I do better next time? Like what's wrong with Mike? You know, what can I, cause that, those are the things that I can control, right? I can't control other factors, good luck, bad luck, but I can control what I do going forward. And so I always try to learn from those experiences and, and go forward and, and turn it into success. And I think yeah, my failures have been my, in many cases, oddly enough, some of my greatest assets, right? It's just turned them around and made sure that I adjusted my behavior.
0: Yeah, and and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, a friend of mine, Brian Scudamore, who is, he's from Canada, he's built, I don't know how many multi-billion dollar companies, he has a book called, you know, WTF, but it's, you know, willing to fail, Right. And, uh, and especially as entrepreneurs, such as myself, right, is, you know, you learn from those failures. Payne's the best professor, right? But let's, let's go back a little bit more in time here. Mm-hmm. So, all right, you don't get to where you've gotten by without having a story. So let's start with your story. Where, where are you from? And take us from where you're from to how you just landed in Texas.
1: Yep. Yeah, walk us through. Yeah. So I grew up outside of Chicago, just north of Chicago. And ended up going to boarding school in DC. And I played lacrosse in, in high school, actually ended up being a high school All American in lacrosse and was recruited to play in college and, and played at Cornell. So I went to Cornell in upstate New York. You know, while I was in upstate New York a, a, at school, 9 11 happened. And that was obviously, for, there's a ton of people at Cornell that are from the New York City area, knew a lot of people that were very impacted by that and i could you know see it very tangibly in front of me i mean i know my dad was was supposed to fly that day you know you could didn't have cell phone service you couldn't you couldn't reach anybody and so i i just that was a very emotional day for obviously a lot of people and that was the day that i decided i'm going to join the military i went to a recruiter's office and said hey i want to be uh you know a special forces guy and they said, Oh, cool. That's awesome. You know, but you can also be a 88 Mike and and do these other jobs. And I was like, what's an 88 Mike. So an 88 Mike, I didn't know at the time I had no idea. They were just saying uh, numbers and names at me that I had no idea what they were. It's a, it's a truck driver, which is uh, you know, a good and valuable role in the military. Right. But, but not what I had set out to do. And they were trying to sell me on something else. So I, I felt, you know, I mean, later you always learn, hey, I'm sorry your recruiter lied to you, son, is a saying for a reason, right? <laughs> and, and so, so I, I, I took that and I was like, all right, let me see if I can get a, a more straight answer. I actually saw somebody walking into the ROTC office on campus in, in you know, their camo a uniform. And, and I was like, all right, well, let me, see, let me see if they can give me a straight answer. So I went in there and I said, hey, I want to be a special forces guy. What do I got to do? Uh, and they were like, all right, I think here's the deal. You can sign up for ROTC. You can complete that training. You can get commissioned as an infantry officer, but here's sort of the odds of doing that, that working out. And then what are the, what were the odds? I, I actually don't remember, but it was Ballpark. some like low percentage. Like I, I
0: couldn't even, I couldn't even say at this point. So tell, explain to the audience why that is, because a lot of people think when they think of the military is like everybody's a ground troop. Right? That's right.
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, you have a lot of specialties, you know, it's, it's, a, you you need all of these people to do their roles. I mean, it's the military is obviously a big organization and does a lot of really complicated things and you need people, you need truck drivers, you need mechanics, you need people that that know how to work on radios, you need people that are good at intelligence, you need people that, you know, make sure that you have all the supplies that you need. So so there's all of these specialties that exist for a very very good reason. And the Army has to, and all, all the militaries, right? the the different branches, have to make sure that each of those is full, right? of of the 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 personnel that they need. And so you you don't just necessarily get your first choice. You get to put down a wish list. And typically, for infantry, these things are looking at like physical fitness and and, you know, presence and, and, and different sort of things in your evaluations to make the judgment on whether or not that, you know, that's a good fit for you. Right. So they they basically said, hey, you know, here's sort of the, the chances. It's it's really up to you. Like you improve your own chances by succeeding at these things, these dimensions. Right. And so, you know, they said that that was that was sort of the, that path there to the infantry. And then they say, if you want to go special forces, you have to do three years in the infantry minimum before you can even go to selection as an officer. And then I, so I said, all right, well, what's the failure rate there? And, you know, there's Barry Sadler sings the Ballad of the Green Beret. You know, 100 men will, will try today, but only three will earn the Green Beret. And so it, it is a very low success rate in getting through the, through the Q course. And he, he, he painted this sort of dire picture of, of how unlikely it was for me to succeed. And that made me want to sign up the very next day. That's just, uh, that's sort of my personality. I love taking on big challenges and, and then fighting my way through those and, and succeeding. It, it's just, maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know, but that's just, then maybe there's something wrong with everybody that's in the community, but, but that's, that's sort of how I am. And, and those are a lot of people that I like to sort of associate with. So, yeah, so got into, got into special forces Ultimately, I did a, a tour in Iraq as an infantry officer where we we lived with, trained, and fought with the Iraqi army. really, really cool experience. They were really you know obviously they were trying to take their city back from from an insurgency and it's just very very striking you know and and you've been a police officer right and so you've been to places where it's like your community and and it's important to you, and and you mm-hmm. want to make sure that that it's a safe place for for everybody there. But you know that that you have sort of a job to do. I mean, these folks had to wear masks when they when they went out on patrols because if somebody saw their face, their family was in danger. You so know, not
0: the same kind of COVID mask.
1: No, no, mm-hmm. this is like yeah, like a balaclava, which is basically like a full face mask, like where only your eyes. And it's this is, this is in you know Baghdad in in August where it's like one hundred and twenty degrees and i mean that was to protect their families i can only imagine right i've never tell me more about that i mean it 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 was just the fact that we could build trust with these folks that they you know they had a lot more on the line than we did i mean to call a spade a spade right this was their this was their home this was their their families this was where you know they had you know, friends and relatives that were running businesses, whether it's like the kebab cart on the corner or the, the butcher shop uh, down the street. Right. Like this is what they they wanted to get back to a sense of normalcy. They wanted things to get back to, to a peaceful sort of environment. And they were willing to stand up and fight for it. And but, we, you know, we had very little in common. Right. Uh, religion was one thing. Just where we were raised was another types of foods we like to eat. Language was an obvious barrier. We had to had to speak to each other through an interpreter. And you know, even the level of of training and and even our weapon system were different, right? They they used AK-47s. We used M4s. So it it was a lot of upfront rapport building, establishing common ground. We have a job to do together. Let's go out and do Let's, let's go out and take, take your city back. And, you know, in the end, you know, we would be, I would actually be in the stack at times and don't ask me why an officer would be in a stack. Explain what a stack is. Good question. So the stack, when you're entering a building, clearing a room, you'll have four soldiers that will line up in a line outside of, of the door. You'll breach the door, which means open it in some fashion, whether that is just turning the doorknob, or whether that is bashing it in or even sometimes blowing it in with an explosive charge. And once you open the door, we didn't have flashbangs at the time for us. That, that stack, that first man in the stack, would go in and and then you would enter enter that room and, and clear it in a in a very orchestrated and methodical way. And so you know the the level of trust between all those people, has to be extremely high, especially. I mean, you know that that first man is going to go in the room, and and you know this well, right? He needs to trust that that second man is going to come in, <laughs> and then that third and fourth man, right? Because like you do not want to be Lone Ranger yeah, in that situation, <laughs> exactly, right? If you're the only one going into that room, like you, you, uh, yeah. So so you have to have faith that under the the direst of circumstances, right? Like, because you go in that room, there could be bullets flying. And you have to make sure that you have confidence in everyone behind you that they're going to go in that room with you. And so ending up in that stack with, with three Iraqi soldiers right? said, said to them, you know, hey, I, I, I trust Mike. And, and to them, I, you know, for me, it was saying, hey, I trust you. Although I will say the safety on an AK-47 is uh, much more challenging to use than on an M4,
0: <laughs> and uh, a lot of them had the safety
1: off oftentimes, so I, I was very, very aware of, of where their muzzle was pointing at all times. But, but yeah, so, so this is this was it was a great experience. I, I really, you know, it, obviously these things have highs and lows, and and there are obviously hard times. But you know, working with others, people from other cultures. You know, it, it really just solidified why I wanted to go into Special Forces because that's that's the Special Forces mission, right? The Special Forces mission is to parachute behind enemy lines, raise a guerrilla army, and then overthrow a government. and And you have to be able to build rapport, show that you care about people that you might have nothing in common with. And then you have to be able to, you know, help those people achieve their, their goals. And at, you know, at the same time, but with a lot of, a lot of these groups, you know, tension and and passions may be like really high. Right. I mean, you have situations where these people have been oppressed, right. And, and, you know, say you capture a, a, you know, government soldier, you know, are you going to let that group execute that soldier or abuse that soldier? I mean, that's, that's, against the Geneva convention that that can't happen right and we can't be a party to that so you have to be able to influence people you know to do the right thing just universally right thing despite the fact that they have every instinct at that time to potentially do something that might not be the right thing it really really is a a, a test of your ability to influence people your ability to lead your ability to to gain the confidence of people it, it it's it it was one of the most It was one of the, it's one of the experiences I'm most proud of, both, both like doing it in the infantry and then, and then going to special forces, because I think, you know, it really is about people, right. And even tying it back to what I'm doing now, it's about people, right. About getting people, you know, letting them have the life that they want to have, right. Similar to the folks I was working with in, in Baghdad, right. They just wanted to have their way of life back. Right. And I I hear a lot of that from folks as I'm as I'm talking to folks that, hey, we just want to be able to live with our values and not have the federal government come in and and, you know, impact that people just want to be left alone. Right. Uh, in, In this community. Right. And that's that's something that I'm just truly passionate about. And that's one of the reasons I sort of got into this. Right. I didn't just choose to do this out of nowhere. Right. I think the last year has been. You know, somewhat of a an interesting sort of time for us all, right? And I think, I think, I think everybody's kind of sort of disappointed with the last year. There, it, what was clear to me, right, is that the government is not working for the people, right? And I, and I think you know you see the a pandemic being used for political gain, like personal or party gains, and this is agnostic of party, right? This is just why. I feel passionately about getting involved. It's, it it just doesn't feel right. Right. And, and, and I feel like we need good people to stand up and say, I'm going to make sure that the government fulfills its responsibility to take care of the people that I represent, you know, and even if taking care of them means getting the heck out of their way. Right. Which is, which is what I believe, but it's been, it definitely has been a, a, an exercise in leveraging a lot of the experience that I had from the military.
0: So let's go back to one of those, as you were just talking about is, so you're already working in an austere environment. Explain what that means to the public. Well, austere
1: environment can mean uh, a lot of things, but in particular it, it means, you know, a, a, an area where you don't have the, the benefits of, of the things that you're used to in modern, modern life and, and including security. Like you just, you don't know, oftentimes there's someone that's, that's out to get you one way or another. So you have to make sure you're just on guard for, for everything. You know, you might not have a bathroom. You might have an outhouse. You might, you might not have anything. You might have a hole in the, in the dirt, right. Depending on where you are. And so you're really sort of in the middle of in the middle of uh, an environment that, that nobody in in sort of modern day would really want to live in, I guess.
0: Yeah. And so with that being said, and I want to kind of go back here a little bit, being in an austere environment, you're working to build trust with folks that have to completely mask up, hide all their identity because they believe in what they want to do to try to take their community back. But now they've got folks that, don't look like them, don't have the same religion as them, that they're having to partner up with, communication, oh, man, I mean, just the the gaps in communication there, and then trusting those folks to walk in. I mean, hey, if you, and you and I talk about this is, you don't know trust until you trust somebody next, next to you that has a muzzle two inches from your head that they're not going to shoot you, right? Yes. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then going into something you said that I want to, I want to go on to is, Naturally, there's a lot of emotions in there if they have to mask up to prevent their identity from being shown because they're trying to get rid of the bad guy, right? The bad mm-hmm. people, yep. per se. Yeah. And then did you ever come across any of those situations where you either had to interfere to make sure that they didn't go, hey, we're, we're just going to be judge, jury, and executioner right here? Yeah. So, so we did – we did
1: often take steps to make sure that that there wasn't a situation it was it in baghdad where we had a little bit more structure around it we were able cuz we were working with the iraqi military right it wasn't a guerrilla force of of folks that sort of this ragtag group that sort of has their own way of doing things they're not it's not a militia so they had they had somewhat of a code although you know sometimes like all bets are off a little bit when when tempers run run hot right and when they lost friends and lost family members, you know, you, you sort of knew that that people would be tempted to maybe not do the right thing in, in certain situations. Right. So we would always take steps to make sure that we did the right thing. You know, it could even mean, you know, going into neighborhoods and, and that that they just didn't like the people from that neighborhood. Right. And so you would make sure that you were in the room with them that, that you were there to sort of help them through and make sure that they weren't going to do the wrong thing and be there to, to observe and, and even like little things, right? Like you would bust into someone's house and, and sometimes it would be the wrong house. You got bad Intel, right? And you got women and children sort of screaming cause you just bust into their house in the middle of the night. And, you know, we bring candy and give candy to the kids and try and calm them down and, and try and try and get things back, you know, Make sure that it wasn't just the the, the as terrible a situation as it is. I mean, as you can imagine, someone busting into your door in the middle of the night be pretty unpleasant. But definitely wanted to try and mitigate as much of that as we could. And then with the Iraqi army, we always made sure that we had some just control measures in place to make sure that nothing could kind of go wrong there.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think this is a really interesting point of breaking into houses in the middle of the night. Is look, we're living in a lot of turmoil especially in the last 12 months. I mean, not just from the pandemic. Politics with an election, you know, presidential election, that was, you know, a lot of turmoil. Mm -hmm. Protesting and riots, not even anything to do with the elections, but other things going on in this country. Wildfires, hurricanes, then a Texas freeze, all, all this, right? And people, I think, in this country still forget that even though we've dealt with all of that, Imagine living somewhere that doesn't have the privileges, the infrastructure, the money, the sophistication, the modernization that we live in. Where here, if somebody's door gets kicked in, there's warrants involved. There's all the stuff involved. There's cases that are built because somebody's going to go to jail. Yep. Over there, where you're, where, where yep. you know operating was because you were in there to try to extract people before they went and mass killed more people. So we hear mass killings here and I know the second Amendment's a touchy subject with people, you know, but look, when you live in an environment where you go, well, you know, we had this mass shooting here and blah, 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 blah. Like over there, that was a day-to-day thing, you know, you know, somebody, you know, hitting a button, cacao, you know, Roadside bomb or what? Suicide vests and everything. That was the day to day reality. That's right. So I don't want the audience to hear what Mike's talking about and go, "Oh, okay, we're going to go kicking indoors in the middle of the night." No, no, no. That's right. Different place, different environment. Different and they time. were there to try to protect, you know, it, it, you know the the citizens of Iraq and Afghanistan living there, right? That's right. Because I mean, here's the thing too: is I don't think a lot of people fully understand is you. What do we have? Like 350 million people live in this country. Something like that. Right. Around there. How many of those have never left the United States? A good chunk. Even more so is haven't left the United States. And I don't mean going to Canada or Mexico count. Right.
1: Not a big chunk haven't. Yeah.
0: Then how many of those haven't even been down to Cancun for a good time or (laughs) going up to Vancouver or whatever, even less. Yep. How many have never even left their state? To go to another state, and then let's dial it down even further. Have never even left their metroplex to go to another metroplex, or their county or city to go to another city. It, that is the reality, right? Yep. And so when people are living within their own realities, yep. Right? You know, the, that's right. Look, You and I, it's a blessing and a curse that we have got to experience other countries, austere environments, all of this. So we have a different perception of the world. Yep right? Versus the person that's never even left their own city. That's right. And I'm not talking about someone 18 years old, never left their city, like fifties, sixties, never left their own city or County. And, and so these are real things that go on around the world where we've been in war for this year, 20 years. And people, people forget about that. That's People right. don't even think about it. So, so what we're talking about here to say where the audience doesn't get any confusion is Mike is talking about the environments that he worked in. And where I'm really interested in the focus of this part of the conversation is you're there and you're having to build trust with a community Mm -hmm. that doesn't know you. That's right. Doesn't agree with you. That's right. Doesn't look like you. Yep. Different religion. Yep. I mean, man, we could go down the list of how many differences yet – you demonstrated leadership that no matter how many differences there were, you were able to bring people together, accomplish great things, and you were able to set steps in place that, like, hey, we're going to go do this together, but we're going to do it the right way. Yep, right. yeah. and And so that's the key takeaway here that I think that the audience listen to. And, and I want to take this back even, even a little bit further. From that is, so, you know, when, you know, and, and again, I'm not trying to make this all about politics, but I hear that and I hear that's what we're missing in D.C., right? Yes, things are very polarized in this country. As a matter of fact, the worst thing you can do is not be vocal about opinion, right? That's right. Because somebody go, what's your opinion? Uh, are you A or B? Well, I'm A. Oh, I hate you for being A. Okay, well, I'm B. I hate you for being B, yep. right? You need to be in one camp or the other. And then for me, I'm not very vocal about things mm-hmm. on purpose. I don't need to go in to make sausage out of that today. <laughs> it's not because I don't have opinions and and great opinions. It's just, anyhow, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But if somebody doesn't have an opinion now, it just seems like people, both sides, A and B, are like, you need to pick a side, pick a side, pick a right. side. And all this, and and, and it really is. I think that's probably the biggest frustrating thing that I see right now is because guys like you and I and many of our friends took an oath to serve this country. By the way, out of 350 million Americans, between vets that just got out yesterday, Mm -hmm. all the way back to World War II, active duty military and reservists, all added together, we make up, I think it's less than 6.8% of that entire population. So we were willing to go do this. And then we see what's going on around this country and and look, I I, (laughs) you and I are firm believers in you can have it it's okay not to agree. Right. It is absolutely okay not to agree. But what I want to do is be able to live in an environment where we can respect dialogue. Yep. Right. I can respect that you have an opinion and it's different from mine. Hell, you and I disagree on stuff, man. Yeah, You know, we might have had a few cocktails yeah. and, 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 and it really comes up. But yeah, but, but, but yeah, and, and it, it's okay to disagree, but then you go, okay, well, if you're going to go somewhere to work in, we could call it almost an austere 2.0 environment in D.C., right? Yeah, yeah. Is where these things have become so polarized to create dialogue is when somebody's going to go do that, what what experience do they have that they can rely on that gives them the tools to do that. And that's what it sounds like is you you didn't just get the tools to do it, but you had to go demonstrate those tools in one of the most difficult situations you possibly could. So I would say you've got experience in that category. I, I like to think so as well. I mean, it, it, I'm frustrated
1: in the same way as you, right? I, I think that the, the problem today, right, is you have people that are fundamentally saying, and this has happened in this experience, right? I have friends, people that I knew that are saying, Hey, you're wrong about this. It, and it's, it's no longer, I disagree with you on this. It's you're wrong because you don't believe what I believe. And I, I think we need to get back to, I disagree with you. And, and no, nobody has. we we can't say that people have the wrong ideas, right? We can say that we disagree with them. And, and, and I would actually venture to say that because the first amendment is so important that that would include even the, the vilest, most venomous stuff that you can imagine, right? Like, I, I I think that like, look, if, if somebody wants to say I'm a racist, you know, "I, I, I disagree, you know, but I don't think it's wrong if they if they want to say say something like that, right? That's the First Amendment. That's fundamentally what it's about. We, like we we need to make sure that we get back to to just disagreeing and not not picking a side of right or wrong. It's it, it it's too complicated, too complex. We can't say anymore that 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 there is a right or wrong, right? Every issue has so much nuance and so much complexity. And I think a big part of the problem with the dialogue we're having is that. Most of it has to fit into 240 characters. So the only way and, and nobody sees that message unless it, it's something that people will propagate and, and push forward for you. And the only way that happens is if it's extreme one side or the other. We have we're baked into our communication these days, these mechanisms that will further divide us into these camps of, of right or wrong. For, for each side, right? Each side has their, this is right and this is wrong. And everyone is super entrenched. I, I, I would love to see a time in, in the future, hopefully the near future, where we get back to just saying, I disagree with you, but Hey, Oh, actually like we do, dis- we do agree on these couple points here and we can uh, agree on those and we can actually do something about that for the American people. Right. I, 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 it's not a good versus evil scenario. We're supposed to have balance of powers. This was how our country was set up. We're set up to fundamentally disagree. And that's what we should do. But we need to get back to disagreeing and not not go towards you know, the absolute destruction of, of another group's values or another group's you know, party or, or whatever it may be. Right. I, I think we need to have disagreement. And that makes us better. But we don't have
0: disagreement anymore. So when you allude to the 240 characters, you're talking about Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. So really interesting. As you know, I record these in bulk over a period of two days, and then they go into the pipeline dropping every Tuesday so I can, you know, it's just easier for me to record every other month than doing this every week. And so I had a guest yesterday, a friend of mine, Chris Powers, imp- impressive, impressive guy. Like, I mean... I probably made him uncomfortable as soon as he sat down and we opened it up. And I'm like, man, I got to tell you why I got a man crush on you, right? And he's like, oh, I, I didn't come in here <laughs> for this. It was that kind it's, of interview. <laughs> um, I've known Chris, who he was. We don't really know each other really, really well, right? And so, but one of the things I found really fascinating about Chris is here's a guy that went to TCU at 17 and in his freshman year, bought his first asset for $100,000. Now, fast forward 16 years later, now has almost a half a billion in assets. Like you don't get there without, you know, as Buddy Peterson would say, cracking a few eggs along the way, right? right. And, but the point being is, I've had someone that managed my social media for so long that really it's not me on social media most of the time. I, I just don't have the time. Right. And quite frankly, for the longest time, I, I didn't want to because it just seemed very one directional. I'm telling you you're wrong or I'm telling you right, but I don't want dialogue. I don't want to disagree. And then after Trump got booted off Twitter, it caused me, even though I've got a had a Twitter account for a number of years, caused me to just go, all right, I'm a little curious to know a little bit more about this because you've got the you know censorship questions and all this stuff that's popping up. So I wanted to see it. So Naturally, I would, you know, I, I'm sitting here following a number of people. I've got some people on the right side of the aisle, some on the left side of the aisle, some center of yeah. the aisle. But what I noticed was the same thing: is they would put what they were saying in 240 characters, and then I would just stop reading the comments below because it was either, oh, you're absolutely right, or you're wrong and you're an idiot, and just it was just really just toxic, right? Yep. And and I was just like, that's not what I'm here for. But then I saw my friend Chris Powers is you know, his Twitter account. And he's, he, he has taken this to be able to create an avenue of dialogue. Hmm. Like he's communicating. As a matter of fact, when he was in here yesterday recording, I was, that's how I got him in here. I didn't have his phone number. I didn't have his email. I sent him a tweet and said, Hey, wow. fellow frog, TCU, you want to come on podcast? Send me a direct message. Got it all set up. And I was like, so it is actually you on this thing. And he's like, yeah, it's me. Hmm. And he goes, and what I do is I block out the noise of things. Like I, because there is a lot of noise out there. There is. But he created dialogue, and so when it, when you think about the dialogue that he's created on Twitter, you naturally have to make the assumption he's created dialogue in his own business practice as a person business person all all, all of this. Yep. And and it really hit me last night when when I was at home and I, I was really processing this. So I was like no wonder in 16 years he went from, and I'm not saying that the, that the measure of success is $100,000 an asset to 16 years later, half a billion an asset. But he got there not because he was really good at buying real estate. He got there because he was really good at dialogue, right? Yep. And so that, that's just an example that I want to bring back to go, okay, if we're living in a, in, in, in an environment right now where it's either you're right or wrong, and really, we just need to get back to, hey, wait a minute. We just disagree. How are you going what, – what steps have you thought about that you're going to take to try to create an environment to go, let's get away from right or wrong and get back to we disagree?
1: Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about this, right, because it, it, it's definitely not an easy task. But to me, I mean, I think there's, there's groups like like With Honor – is a is a a pack and it's an organization that that is about you know it's about veterans first of all and getting veterans into into congress but it also has a a pledge where you say you'll you'll engage in in conversation with people across the aisle veterans across the aisle and and i I think that's a good a good place to start you know you got to start somewhere right and and sometimes you you parachute into that austere environment you come across that 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 hungry gorilla army. And the first thing you do is here's my MRE. Like I won't eat, you can eat. And, and you sort of hand, hand off that olive branch. Right. And I think that it, it would be the same thing in this scenario. Find those vets on the other side of the aisle, talk to them. Just, I mean, honestly have a beer. I, I don't even know. It doesn't even seem like that's happening. Right. It seems like if you don't even, if you even associate with the other side, you know, that's sort of a, not a great, it's sort of a stain on your, on your reputation almost. Right. I, I would love to go and, and talk through some issues with, with folks on the other side and just hear their actual perspective, not what they put on Twitter, not what they put on, you know, the, the media, because you only have a few seconds on the news to put your point across. You only have so many characters on Twitter to put your point across, but let's get into the details on this stuff, figure out where we actually agree and see if we can do something about it. You know, and, and, and I think hopefully you, you start small with just like, hey, two vets having a beer and talking about, an issue. And then maybe you expand from there and, and there, it's a, Hey, I know so-and-so is also, you know, on board on, on this type of thing. And, and then you can start getting back to, Hey, here's an issue. We disagree about maybe even like a lot of it, maybe most of it, but here's the small piece of it that we actually agree on. Let's do something on that. And, and what, you know, you gotta, sometimes you gotta start small, right. To, to have things sort of snowball and build momentum but I think that's what it would require to get back to this sort of sense of normalcy where we have this civil dialogue and and not just the civil dialogue, but that that, you know, people across the country are are happy again. Right. Like the people in the sixth district of Texas are happy that, you know, the, the government is out of their way and and and, you know, they feel safe and secure and that they're they're allowed to have their own values. Right. And then people in other parts of the country can can have theirs. Right. So I, I think that that's sort of the keys. You just got to talk to folks. And that, I mean, that's what it is about all in all of these scenarios, whether it was with the Iraqi army or, you know, special forces sort of training exercises and, and, you know, even deployed overseas is literally sometimes it's just having a beer and not even talking about any of the issues. Sometimes it's just getting to know somebody and building a relationship and being like, Hey, we actually had more in common than we thought. And then, and then you can kind of go from there.
0: You know, it's really funny that you say that. When it comes to race, religion, gender, languages, nationalities, go down the list. One of the things I've learned in being on this planet for almost half a century is people are so hyper-focused on how we're different. And the funny thing is we actually have more in common than we have different. That's right. Right? Yeah. We just may have a different – we might each disagree on – The approach to said problem, right? right. And then, and if I hear you correctly, you know, you know, starting, you know, starting somewhere, reaching out to fellow veterans on the other side of the aisle is, is, and if I am putting words in your mouth, correct me, is you are trying to establish trust, right? That's right. But but people think, I think we live in a world right now with. Just social media and, and Amazon and all these big things that people think you establish trust based on big things where actually trust starts at a crawl, walk, run, That's sprint right. pace, right? Yep. And you and I have had these conversations, so I'm just trying to open that up for you. It's like your strategy for, for moving forward is to concentrate on the things that you can move the needle on and you can build trust on these little you know, yeah. You know, not the big three armed green gorilla in the room because we've been fighting over the three armed green gorilla in the room for a hundred years and nothing's happened. But you've got smaller things that can actually impact citizens in this country. Yep. It, it, you know that, what I'm going on there? No, right? absolutely. Yeah.
1: That, that's completely right. You know, it, and I think, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in across across the sixth district about this, and and at the outset, I get I get a lot of concern like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're you're going to talk to the other side and you're not going to fight for my values? I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm still going to make sure that we're able to preserve your values, but that doesn't mean that that we share nothing in common with the other side. We need to find where we agree, and and that's what's going to allow me to get things done for you. It it, it has nothing to do with with me embracing wholesale, you know, another person's viewpoints because we're still going to disagree. But there's areas where we do agree, and that especially when the Republicans are in the minority in the House right now that's the only way that we can move the needle on a lot of the issues that matter to people most. You know, you can say you're going to do this or that and and unilaterally do it, but you're just one vote in the house. You got to be able to build consensus. You got to be able to build agreement, build alignment amongst enough votes to get something passed. And the only way to do that is to establish that trust and establish that those relationships. And that's, you know, within your own party. And I think, that you can find folks in in the other party that where, where you're aligned on, on certain issues that are actually aligned with the values of the people uh, that you represent. And I think that we've perhaps lost our way a little bit with that because we just assume that everything that they think is wrong and everything that we think is right. And there's no common ground. And I agree entirely with what you're saying. It's it's, it's we need to find the areas where we overlap in, in our, in our values. And then we need to figure out a way that we can, deliver that for for our people and that's i think what our sk- sort of skill set from the military right like uniquely gives us to to do that you know at the end of the day like we talked about right like the, the US army the US military overall Geneva conventions like you can't violate the Geneva conventions right and i i can tell you there's a lot, a lot of folks that have lived through hard times in other countries that you know, may not care about the Geneva Conventions as much as we do, right?
0: Does the enemy care about Geneva Convention? Depend on the enemy, but mostly no. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> exactly. You know, so so you you go into these situations where you have to make sure that you're representing your values, but you have to meet somewhere in the middle with this group that you're you have to work with, and make sure that that you can get done what you need to get done to accomplish the mission, right? I think it's the same
0: thing. Yeah. So let's let's go back to when you're an infantry officer and I th- help, help for the audience now, because look, here's the kind of funny thing is I think a lot of times, and I've experienced this when I, you know, with Cowtown warriors when we had the event, you could have an en- officer and enlisted guy, gal, whatever, mm-hmm. sitting there side by side in uniform. And a lot of civilians couldn't tell the difference between which one's the officer, which one's the, the enlisted person. So, Kind of tell us a little bit of the difference between... It's going to be kind of a two-part question, right? The difference between the Rangers and what they're designed to do and what you have to go through to do there to become a Ranger. And then let's dive into what you have to do to become a Special Forces because they're two different, right? very much. Some have done both. Some have only done one or the other, right? And then the failures you learned out of the Rangers when you didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. To what... Allowed you to learn from that to become successes. Yep. Because the selection process is quite different, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do think that. So, one thing
1: it's important to point out early on. And so, there's, there's, there's two things. There's Ranger School where you get Ranger qualified and you get, you get trained in infantry tactics. And then there's the Ranger Regiment. So Ranger Regiment is a special operations infantry unit, special operations infantry unit that that is a, a, a very highly trained version of, of infantry unit. They have their airborne qualified. They, they do a lot of special missions, special operations missions. So for, for me, I, I never went to the Ranger regiment, but I, I, and Ranger school was what I, what I failed out of, but that is a very, very focused on infantry tactics, right? And it's, and it is less about necessarily engaging with other militaries or other cultures, it is very focused, very mission focused, very action focused, direct action focused. The other side of things, special forces is special forces is a 12 man team. So you need to be a combat multiplier. So you need to be an expert in direct action and you need to be an expert in special reconnaissance and all these other mission types.
0: Define the difference between direct action and reconnaissance. So that way, the audience who don't know much about the military yes. understand. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, so direct action is very much the sort of you think about sort of the bullets flying, right? That's where you are going to engage with an enemy in combat, and reconnaissance is ideally you, you don't want to engage in combat. You want to go and bring back information about what the enemy is doing what's going on in a certain area, it's it's more informational and you don't want to engage in conflict. So all sorts of different sort of mission types that you got to be sort of a jack of all trades and know quite a bit about them to be in special forces. And one of the reasons you have to be an expert in them is because you have to train other forces how to do that because you need to be a combat multiplier. So you need to train them in. Explain what combat multiplier means. Combat multiplier means that, you know, like if you're, if you're a 12 man fighting force and you're, you're going up against a, a battalion, or even a platoon of of enemy infantry, your odds are, despite your your high level of training, are not good, right? <laughs> and 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 so what a combat multiplier means is that you can raise your own army almost, so you can make um, more out of those those twelve people than just those twelve people alone. So you can take, say, a group of guerrillas, so say like an insurgency, right? So one one man's insurgent is another man's freedom fighter. So in this case, right, you you would be, they would be freedom fighters in this case, right? Because that's what America supports. We support freedom fighters, not insurgents, but you, you take those folks, you train them, you, you teach them how to use weapons. You teach them how to do all sorts of tactics, you know, small unit tactics, ambushes and, and patrolling and, and direct action, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, each team is able to basically build a battalion sized organization of these guerrillas. And so then that allows them to, you know, when you do encounter that enemy infantry platoon, now you have a much better chance of of defeating them. And so that's what that's what it means. Right. So so a ranger is not going to be a combat multiplier. They're going to bring everything they need for the fight there and and all the additional assets. And they're going to go and they're going to. Break stuff, kill the enemy, blow stuff up—really good at that. And and for special forces, it's more about building that kind of capability in others. Okay,
0: so take me through when you were going to Ranger School. What were the challenges that that you went through that caused your hardships that would later become strengths to get you through the Q course?
1: Yeah, I think so. To be honest. It was, it was my first experience, I think with, with sort of, a, so in ranger school, nobody wears any rank. Everybody sort of comes in, you're all the same. And, you know, I just got out of, out of college and it's just a very different culture. And then. So you're what, 22 years old? 20, yeah, 23, 24, something like yeah. that. And, and, you know, now you're in this squad of, it's all mixed, the like officers enlisted and, you know college graduates and you know high school dropouts that got their GED like you know all all walks of life that just weren't weren't folks that I was typically you know associating with before that to be honest right and so again in this scenario and I'm maybe uh, overly critical less helpful than I should have been you know when it came time for me to to actually lead because right, that you rotate leadership through nobody wanted to follow me and And i was like okay wow i really screwed this up
0: Um, what 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 were some of the reasons why they didn't i mean for me
1: i just i think when maybe i could have been more helpful i probably wasn't helpful i mean there's there's some like kind of quick wins you can do in ranger school right where you get there day one and if you volunteered to carry the machine gun you know you're going to carry that weight for the team that's the type of thing that sort of endears you to other folks right and i just I didn't jump on opportunities like that. I didn't jump on like, Hey, here, here's how I can help. I sort of like, just wasn't proactive about helping the team. Just like, it was just bad, bad behavior. It's, it's a hard for me to even talk about it. Cause it's a, it, 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 I'm embarrassed that that was who I was at the time. Just, you know, not helpful. And then when people, you know, planned routes or, or whatever through like hard, hard terrain, it's just like I whine and complain. Like, Why would we choose this route? Like, what are we, what are we doing? Like, you know, why wouldn't we, other, so, you know, just not helpful, just very, like just being critical and not coming up with, with better solutions or alternatives, not, you know, making the team better. I was making the team worse, the squad worse. And, you know, just didn't really realize I was doing it. And then, you know, came out of that experience. Well, while I was in that experience, just people let me know, you know, yeah. you know it was my turn to, to plan. It was like, Hey, I need help. Nobody was there to
0: help. You know, the funny, the funny thing is, and this is where I can really appreciate you diving into this. So many people out there, all they want to do is talk about the pretty side of things. They don't want to talk about the ugly side of things. But actually, it's the ugly side of things that we embrace and we confront, that we learn from, that makes us beautiful, not pretty, right? And so it demonstrates your character and your integrity to come on a podcast that potential voters are going to sit here and listen to. And you're being honest about it because what's one of the biggest complaints people have about politicians in uh DC. It's dishonest, dishonest. Right. So it, you know, the buck's got to start somewhere and it's starting, you know, I mean, it long started before you ever met me, but you know, for the it, all intents and purposes on this podcast. So, so you go through and you learn, and I'm sure this carries heavy on your heart. Like, taught me through the feelings that you said, embarrassed, but taught me through the feelings of that and what it would do once you, because now you go to your infantry unit and now you got to go lead, you got to go lead these folks into combat. And they're like, like this ain't call of duty. Yeah, This ain't responding. No, this is, this is real deal. Like this is, this is going to happen. People yeah. are going to try to kill us. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they're not just going to try to kill us. They want to kill us. As a matter of fact, they have failed if they didn't kill us. So the feelings going through you to get to your unit, to prepare them to go to combat, walk me through some of those.
1: I mean, I was, I was scared at that point. I mean, you know, you're just, I mean, going to combat is scary in and of itself, right? But, but on top of that, being responsible for, you know, at the time when I got there as a new unit, 27, 27 Muldoons, right? 27 folks and, and knowing that they're, they're my responsibility and feeling like I'd already let them down before I even got there. And I was like, you know, just felt awful. Right. And, and for me, I think that, you know, going through that experience though, and being like, all right, what did I do wrong? Like, I, I didn't listen to other people. I complained. I you know didn't, didn't contribute to making a better plan and, and making things better for the organization. And, and you know, one thing like when you're an officer, you are always the least experienced person on every team that you lead at the tactical level. Right. And so if you go into that, that circumstance saying like, Hey, I know everything I'm the, I'm the boss. You are destined to fail. There is just no way I feel like you can, you can succeed other than by luck. But so for me, I, I was blessed to have a platoon sergeant that, you know, was able to see past the fact that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have a Ranger tab and, and he was willing to keep an open mind and be like, Hey, this guy is maybe not screwed up and to sort of start off and build trust with him and, and the rest of the men, it was about listening to them. It was like, Hey, like I don't, I have a couple of months of infantry officer basic course and that's it. And, and you know, you guys have deployed before, you know more about this, like you help me prepare and then I will help us all prepare. Right. So took just a much better team approach, like built trust, you know, and, and really listen, listen to folks and, and their ideas. And I mean, it's amazing, right? You, you, you have this diverse group of people, all walks of life and they have just amazing, amazing ideas. And, and if you listen to all of that and sort of piece it all together, you can come up with just amazing plans and, 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 and amazing ways to execute an operation better. It, it, it was You know, I, and, and you just leverage people's experience as well. We, so I had one of my, one of my squad leaders was a former army ranger. She was in the ranger regiment. So not, not the tab, but he was in, in regiment in the unit. And so he was an expert at direct action. So I'm like, all right, well, we're going to do direct action training. You're the guy, like, let's come up with the, let's come up with the plan for the training together. And, and you lead us through it, you know, better than anybody else. And, you know, by working with people that have the expertise and, and, and giving them my trust, I earned trust back. I think it kind of went both ways. And, you know, I think them seeing me work really hard to try and be uh, the best possible leader for them that I could, because that, that was that was my going in strategy, right. was like, all right, like what, what do I got now that, that is, what can I do for these folks? I'm like, I can work harder than anybody else. Like that's, that's the, that's sort of the name of the game at this point. I've I've sort of coming in with bad credibility because I didn't have a Ranger tab, but I can just work really hard and make sure that we are as prepared as possible to get, get over there and, and, and do the best we can. And so that was sort of the inception, right. Of, of, all right, like how this this didn't work in ranger school. All right. I, I have some ideas on what that was. All right. Let me, let me see what I can do coming out of there to sort of figure it out and, and do better. It's like, all right, hard work, listening to, to others, like always being willing to, to do more than anybody else, making sure that, that the, the team had, you know, sort of cohesion and that I was sort of tying things together. And, and that, that is that was ultimately, I think sort of me getting down that path of being successful. And I, you know, I, I, by no means was I perfect. I, I definitely made mistakes as well, e- even in that, that phase. But I think I started seeing like, here's my, here's how Mike Egan builds trust gets things done and is an effective leader. And, and I was able to carry that forward. And I, and I do think that got me on that path to go and be successful uh, in getting into special forces because I mean, special forces selection is, you know, it's 30 days. You're, there's a bunch of individual sort of tests you know, ruck marches and, and physical fitness tests and things like that, you know, ruck march being you just carry a heavy backpack for miles and miles. And then, you know, so, but there's also a team portion, right? Where it's, Hey, pushing a, a Jeep with three, three wheels down, down a Sandy, Sandy road. You know, near, near in North Carolina. Right. And, and it's none of these exercises are pain-free. You could come up with the best plan, but it's always going to suck no matter what. Right. And they're all designed that way. It's, it's, it's incredible. So you have to build a a good plan with the team together. And then you have to make sure that everyone sort of already knows going into it. Like this is the best plan we got. We only have so much time is what we came up with. It's going to suck but we're all in this together and let's all suck through this together and you get it done. And, and, and if you can't motivate people to get through that sucky experience together in selection, you don't you don't get selected. Right. And so that to me was, was somewhat validating in that, like, all right, like all the problems I had in ranger school. All right. Well, it it seems I've taken care of, you know, at least enough of them at this point, and and I never I never give myself full credit. So I'll never say, like, hey, I'm I'm perfect now, got it all taken <laughs> care of, because you know, the next thing is I'm the I'm the least experienced guy on my special forces operational detachment.
0: So just so that the audience understands, how many people did you enter the Q course with? Just ballpark. I want to say about four hundred. Four hundred. How many graduated? Just that thirty day Q course. <sighs> I don't remember. I think it was maybe
1: fifty or sixty, something like
0: that. I don't Wow. I, I don't know. Man. Yeah. So in other words, it's not just something, hey, endure pain for 30 days and you're going to make it because you had some people that made it all the way through the course, but didn't get selected. Talk about that. 30-day non-selects. So yeah, you Imagine get Imagine that. You get to all the way to <laughs> the Look end. Let that soak in, audience. You go through all of this. You do everything for 30 days. And at the end of it, uh, yeah. sorry. Well, so throughout the whole process, right, you're given zero feedback. So it's all, it's intended to- Zero feedback? Like they don't tell you- Hey, you did that right. You did that wrong. You need to do more of this. Do less of that. Nothing. No. So it's completely ambiguous. Yeah. Austere in its own self. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
1: you might. I mean, you might get some feedback here. Like you might know that you didn't make time on on getting the the jeep, you know, across the finish line, right? So you get feedback that way. And I think if you're if you're uh, rucksacked and weigh enough, you, you might get feedback that way. But You know, in terms of some of the time standards and things like that, just, you know, a lot of ambiguity and it's to make sure that you can deal with ambiguity, right? Just keep the best thing you can do is just keep moving on. You don't know how you're doing. And so you get to the end of this exercise, right? And there's people that quit, you know, at various phases, people get injured. All this stuff happens throughout. It's actually kind of striking, right? You just, you go into it and, and you see all the ways that people drop out. People just get tired of it. People can't. can't handle the ambiguity and you get to the end of this thing and you're all in this sort of formation and they just start calling out roster numbers. Like, so you have a number that's, you know, you you almost don't have a name. You just have a number and they call out numbers. You don't know if that number is you're a select or a non-select. And so, you know, number got called, went to a went to a, uh, you know, some classroom and they're like, congratulations, you got selected. So it's like up to the very last minute. And then, you know, you get in there and you get counseled and, and they say, Hey, here's how you did on all these things. Like it's, you know, they have sort of a breakdown of it and they're like, yeah, you, you did, you know, well enough, you did great, whatever it is, right? Whatever the answer is. But it's, it is just, that's like the high anxiety moment. Cause you are just, you don't know if you're going to be a non-select and you just, Busted your ass for all that time, and it's like, nope, sorry. And and for some folks, you can come back. For officers, that's your one shot. You know, unless if you get injured, I think you can come back.
0: But if you're like a 30-day on select, that's it. Sorry. Yeah. So and by the way, that doesn't make you special forces, then, does it? No, no. That's that's intro to suck 101. Right. That's right. So then you're a handful of people out of 400 that whether they drop, got injured, selected, non-selected. So you're part of the selected. Yep. What do you do then? Where do you go? What do you do then?
1: So then you go to the, the special forces qualification course, which is a set of training courses that is designed to give you the skills that you need to be uh, whatever your specialty is going to be in special forces. Uh, so there's some training that's common to all, like small unit tactics where you learn things like ambushes, you know, and it, it's a lot of ambushes really, there's patrolling and, and that kind of stuff. But you're carrying around a heavy pack. You learn a lot of, you know, things the hard way, right? If you're going to cross a large open danger area, there's a technique to it. And if you do it wrong, the instructor is going to start throwing our artillery simulators out there, you know, like, cause if you're visible in the open, then the enemy would call artillery on you. So you got to do it smartly. You do it wrong the enemy calls in artillery and then you have to you know sprint with your heavy pack usually someone fake dies in the situation and you have to carry that person and their pack and it just i mean it's learn a lot of lessons through pain and suffering <laughs> <laughs> really like, not going to do that again so so you you learn the lesson quick but that is doing that for extended periods of time like it just wears on people and people quit there too. Right. And then there's people that just don't make the standard. Right. So you have to give operations orders for your patrols and, and you have to lead those patrols in small unit tactics. And if you are deficient at that, then you fail out.
0: Now, how, how long is this portion?
1: This portion is, I'm trying to remember. It's a couple months. I want to say it like call it maybe like eight weeks, something like okay.
0: that. So two months. So even if there again, you, you, made it through all an additional eight weeks of pain and you're part of the best of the best of the best that got selected to go do this, you could again make it to the end of it and go ah, non-starter.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the instructors there are, they're looking I mean, they're going to go back to the teams and they are going to have to work with, with us. Right. And so if, if they, they're going to try and get you to fail out if they don't think you got it. Right. And they, they, don't go out of their way, but they make sure that they uphold the standard and that they measure everybody against the standard. It, it's, it's super important. And I'm glad that they do it that way. It made it really hard on us, but that's how it's supposed to be. So you get, you get through that phase. Then you go to Sears school, which I'm sure you've been to Sear school. It's yeah. I mean, they call it camp slappy.
0: Uh, <laughs> Explain what that means for the audience. <laughs> so, so
1: you, you learn a bunch of survival skills in the, in the beginning and, and you learn some other sort of skills that are relevant. If you get caught behind enemy lines, you need to get out of there. But then there's a simulation where, where you are basically a, a POW and you know, they can't really beat up on you the way you'd get beat up on as, as a POW actually overseas. Right. Where it would be the butt of a rifle or getting punched or kicked or whatever it may be. But they can hit you and they and they do. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's some limitations on it, which I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Can't slap Yeah. <laughs> so there's some there's some limitations on it that, that I, I probably you know, shouldn't get into uh, yeah. specifically, but but they'll hit you in the face. And you feel it, and it's the same thing. You learn through pain and suffering. <laughs> I've learned learned a lot of good lessons through blunt force trauma. It's my, <laughs> my, be- my best, my best, sort of uh, means of learning. And so, I, you know, they'll they'll do that, and it 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 definitely helps teach you, and and you learn again, like a lot of valuable lessons. And there's, that that is really a course that is around teaching you and making sure that you, you have the skills that you need. It's less of a, you know, selection sort of like a lot of people graduate that course. It's it's intended to have people graduate and there's different levels to it. Pilots take, take something similar and, and all of that. And then after that, we went into language phase. So you have to learn a foreign language as a special forces soldier.
0: How long is that? It's call it six months, maybe. Yeah. And, and what language did did you I, get to do? I got Farsi. You got Farsi? Yeah. Because so it's, not everybody goes to the same language school. No.
1: Yeah. So you got, you got Spanish, you got Chinese, Arabic, Farsi, you've got Tagalog, you've got Indonesian, all kinds because there are multiple groups in, in special forces and they will have a certain area of responsibility around the sort of globe. And they will, you know, whether it's Asia or the Middle East or South America. And so, they, the diversity of the environments that we operate in are reflected in the diversity of languages that we have and get instructed in.
0: So, so now I, you got to
1: go learn a language. Yes. So I got yeah. Farsi. Which, Easy
0: language to learn, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I will say it's easier in Arabic, but it was, uh, it was definitely a challenge. I actually enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, you know, you get to learn about the culture as well. I, I you know, I think for me, one of the takeaways from that is like, I would actually love to visit Iran at some point, maybe after a regime change, I think uh, mm. if I went today, I might as well buy a, a one-way plane ticket. Uh, oh yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you, you're going to, you're going to eat Ben Affleck like an Argo. Yeah, to, exactly. To come rescue you out of there while you're hiding out at the Canadian embassy or something. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: But like, but it, you know, it's uh, in terms of the people, not the government you take the government out of it. Yeah. And the extremism out of it, like there's actually like the, a, a really sort of beautiful and rich culture there that I would, I would love to go and go and see at some point. Anyway, I, I learned that and you have to meet a certain standard there. And if you don't meet that standard then you
0: wash out. I mean, a lot of people let's let's, let's all this back. So you got six months, eight months, nine months. So you could be nine months into this thing, done everything and still get
1: dropped. Right. And then you think about how different the skill sets are, right? So, so you might be a physical stud, right? And just crush it at small unit tactics. And you are like the best at tactics. And then you get to like, you just, can't learn a language. I mean, there's some like really smart people that just like just don't, you know, I'm not great at learning languages myself, did okay, but it's yeah, it's it's a completely different skill set, right? And you have yeah. to be able to do all of these things. And so that that was I mean, the the washout rate there is not extremely high, although it does happen, but it's, it, yeah, it, it is a completely different skill set and something that is another barrier to entry, right? And then you'll go into your specialty course after that. So for me, it was the the alpha course, the officer course, because the the basically the the code for a special forces officer is 18 alpha. So there's alpha, and you have a, a bravo, 18 bravo is a weapon sergeant, and then you'll have a Charlie, which is an engineer demolitions. Delta is your medic, and then your echo is your communications expert, right? So everyone will go into sort of their specialized courses to learn those skills. Purposes, they'll become experts in those. Like the, the 18 deltas, the medics in particular, like they'll do trauma rotations at hospitals. They'll do live tissue training where they have to, you know, I don't know how many listeners you have from PETA, but they'll, they'll, you know, have an animal that gets shot and they'll have to keep it alive. But so sorry if anybody's offended by that, but, uh, but it's reality. I mean, it's it's a reality.
0: A, hey, look, if you can't sew somebody up whenever you're being shot at, then that's right. You know, yeah. Yeah. And we're not going to go shooting people. Yeah. Was like, all right, yeah, button them up now. <laughs> exactly. So you're going through 18 alpha. Yep. And how long is that? That is ballpark. I know it's hard to remember. I, I know. I forget how long boot camp was. Right. I, mean, I, I want to say it's three months. I mean, overall, it's about a year and a half of of training. Total training for... from starting Q course to now you're done and you're getting assigned to your team.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: So, alpha, alpha course is a lot
1: about planning. The officer course is about planning and and mission leadership and things like that. And so, you learn to be an expert in in planning and certain doctrines, like you know, and and a lot of different types of planning tools and techniques. And so, that that's really the expertise you develop there. And then from that, you go to sort of like your culminating exor- exercise, which is the called Robin Sage. So you go into a fictional country in a undisclosed location in North Carolina. (laughs) And, and then you meet your guerrilla army and you basically, you're a force multiplier there. You go, you help you train them and then you go and conduct operations with them. You'll go do an ambush. You may have to sneak across some border with, with folks in, well, there's different techniques for that. I also won't won't get into right, right? but yeah, like, yeah. you you may have to do any and all of those things, and you have to train these people how to do it successfully. And I mean, it's an amazing community of people because it, there's a lot of former special forces folks that participate in these exercises. My G Chief, as it's called, the Guerrilla Chief, the Chief of the, the the leader of the army that we're working with. He was a, a Vietnam vet. It was in MACV SOG, You know, it was just a amazing guy that uh, I'm sure had just legendary stories to tell. But, and, and so, yeah, you, you do this. It's, it's the most amazing simulation of unconventional warfare, unconventional warfare being sort of what I talked about before, where it's like you parachute behind enemy lines and then you raise a guerrilla army and overthrow a government. So that's what you're, that's what you're doing in this scenario. And, and after that it's graduation and then onto your first unit where you're again, the least experienced guy
0: on the team. (laughs) So now you go through that and you get assigned to your team, the actual team, right? Yep. What, where do you get assigned? So I got assigned
1: to 5th Special Forces Group, which it, which covers the Central Command area, which is the Middle East. Okay. And that is, the, the group is located at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee, not too far away from Nashville. But yeah, I, I got there and was fortunate, got on a team right away. And... You know, it was an amazing team. Really, I really loved the team. Still keep in touch with a number of guys. Uh, there's a few here in Texas. And, you know, we ended up coming up with our pre-mission training together and then going to going to Iraq together.
0: And So let's go back and then we'll, we'll get off of this and then go to civilian stage of life, right? So you deploy, right? Where do you deploy?
1: So we deployed to Erbil in northern Iraq. Okay. So we were actually doing... Operations for Sock Sense. I, I can't really get into yeah. what we were up to. But so you go
0: to Iraq. You're yep. over there for how long?
1: About nine months. Nine months. Yep. You come back. And then what happens? Come back. I'm a, in a, a staff job. So I'm no longer a, a team leader. I have more of an administrative job after that. And, and so what I do, it, for me, before, before that last deployment, my first son was born, Tommy. He was born, left three weeks after his birth and spent that nine-month deployment in, in Iraq. You know, I was thinking about what to do next and, and truthfully, a lot of the jobs that come subsequently are somewhat more administrative. And I thought to myself, I think maybe it's probably time to go into the private sector. So I went to business school. I went to, went to Wharton. I was very fortunate to, to get in there. Someone took pity on me and, and actually, you know, went to the welcome weekend there. And that's when I met Jamie Peace, the amazing and legendary Jamie Peace, got to know him left business school really enjoyed business school business school was a great experience especially at that stage of my life i just poured myself into learning everything i could learn i i loved it you know it's a challenging school it's i chose finance as my major because i'm a glutton for punishment
0: (laughs) you know you have like all of these my 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 least favorite portion of getting my mba so mo rotter you guys if you're listening, Dr. Rodriguez, you did a great job teaching that. I just, yeah, that was a (laughs) difficult one. So yeah, I know how much pain you're talking about there. So talk about that. Yeah. you're.
1: Yeah. So Wharton has this reputation as a, as a a very finance focused school. And, and for me, like I said, there's something wrong with me where I just want to do the hardest thing I can find. And so I was like, all right, finance seems really hard here. And you know, the other students that are in there are investment bankers, former investment bankers, former folks in private equity, folks have been doing this, you know, practitioners of this for years. And then here's Mike Egan coming out of the army and said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. But uh, yeah, I, I I worked extremely hard at it and I I mean, I enjoyed it. So that helped, but ultimately ended up graduating with honors by some, some miracle. Hard work had something to do with it, I guess, but it was, that was a great experience. And so, and then where do you go from there? So I went to the Boston Consulting Group from there. So I, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life after that, and I, and I thought, hey, consulting will give me visibility into a lot of different companies, and I can kind of figure out what I want to do longer term. When I'm, you know, helping them solve their most strategic problems, I'll understand, you know, a lot of different industries and what they're all about, how regulated they are, how unregulated they are, all of these things. Fi- find a fit for myself, and. And so did that and I, I enjoyed it. I learned a ton from it. My last, this is a, a crazy story, but so my last project there. So Boston consulting group had donated a, I think it was donated. I don't want to speak out of turn there, but, but donated a project team to the Trump transition team. So we were working on project managing effectively all the, the transition plans for the different agencies. So I helped with the Department of Defense. So I was helping to project manage the Department of Defense transition plan for the transition team and was going into the Pentagon, hearing all about all the issues and and how things were going after at the at the very tail end of the Obama administration. And then. Basically, taking that back, taking what President-elect Trump at the time had said on the campaign trail and what he wanted to accomplish in his administration And basically translating that into the changes that need to be made you know at least in the first 200 days right so there's not a lot of appointees in at that point so the administration changes a lot of the political appointees will leave from the previous administration almost all usually and then the next administration will bring in their appointees but it takes time to get them senate confirmed and all of these other things so before those folks are in you you can send in a small little uh, beachhead team that will go in and start getting to work on that 200-day plan and and that's sort of what we did. So so actually, on the back of this transition team project that I did, I was offered an appointment in the Pentagon to help as part of this beachhead team to to see the 200-day plan
0: in action. So it sounds like this beachhead thing is similar to the special forces thing. Am I right or wrong? I mean, just not necessarily in you know going out there and kicking in doors, but just small unit. Yeah helping transition, building trust. Yep. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. On both sides. Yeah. So One leaving, one coming in.
1: Exactly. Well, so, so a lot of the appointees at that point have already, from the previous administration, already left. But there are career civil servants that stay there from across all sort of administrations, right? And, you know, especially with a lot of the You know, just a a hotly contested election with President Trump and and a lot of the rhetoric of, of folks going into that. There was definitely a high level of anxiety with people in in the career civil servants in the in the building. So, you know, going in. Just sort of talking to folks and making sure that they were comfortable with us was was especially critical. I mean, there was there's just. Uh, and we're. It was funny because I remember reading an article where we were called this this shadowy beachhead team. That's like this. I mean, every administration does it. There's like a playbook for how to do this stuff, right? And right. and and we were sort of there in these non-specific roles. They were not roles that were sort of really very very specified. But this is a thing that's that's done pretty frequently. And so folks really don't know, you know, what your sort of deal is on this on this team and and what you're there to do. And and it is to start that transition process from the old administration to the new administration and, and you can work with folks. And I think, you know, the, the folks on the beachhead team came from sort of all sort of different backgrounds and things like that. And, and some had done something like this before and some hadn't, but like, I definitely myself took the approach of, Hey, let's, let's go, let's listen to folks. Let's hear about what's going on. Let's make sure that we keep the trains running on time here in the, in the Pentagon as, as things go ahead. And we figure out where all those things are that that we would need to change to sort of bring Trump's vision in the first couple hundred days uh, to fruition, and do that working with folks and
0: and because these civil servants m- may have different political opinions, yeah, Yeah. You know, some maybe align, some maybe don't, some are center, right? So you you actually kind of already had experience not just doing this, yeah, you know. It, in the military, but now doing it again in DC. Yeah. And I mean, if you think
1: about I mean you think about sort of the breakdown of Republican versus Democrat, just like where folks live. It's like typically the urban areas are are somewhat more Democrat and and the area around DC, you have a lot of a lot of Democrats and a lot of folks are civil servants. And, you know, I think that with this race, that race in particular in 2016, uh, a lot of folks were Concerned, right? About who we were and what we were about, and you know, a lot of the thing, the ways that the things were portrayed in the media was, you know, we were just going to be the this crazy group of ideologues that were going to come in and and just do crazy stuff, and and that wasn't it. No, it it wasn't. It was it was. That wasn't your job. No, it wasn't my job at all. And and ultimately. My role for for a bit there when I when I got initially pulled in is I got pulled into what's called the White House Liaison Office, which helps to it, it's almost like HR for political appointees, and so we will bring in potential candidates for political appointments, have them interviewed, have them interviewed by the Secretary of Defense at the time with Secretary Mattis, and then they'll be interviewed by the Presidential Personnel Office at the White House, and and in certain cases be interviewed by the President himself. Or, or as direct staff, and so that was that's what I did initially, and then I moved into the special operations and low intensity conflict. It's a lot to say, office, <laughs> but I moved in there and and was helping with you know several things. There's a defeat ISIS task force, and and another priority was Section uh, 922 of the National Defense Authorization Act at the time, which which was about making sure that special operations over had had more civilian oversight in the Pentagon. And, and what it called for was to have the assistant secretary of defense for uh, special operations, low intensity conflict to report into the secretary of defense, which interestingly, Chris Miller, who was uh, the secretary of defense, the acting secretary of defense at the very end of the Trump administration, he used a former fifth group special forces officer, Green Beret, And when he got in there, that was his first order of business. He just like right away, he was like, we're doing this. This is the right thing. and And so he elevated that role. You know, the, the current administration has subsequently walked that back, but it it was uh, cool to see for a moment that that thing to actually happen. It's it, it's highly contested. I'm not even sure I know exactly what people don't like about it, but it, it was cool to see that happen there in the last days of the administration, even though did it was you, taken away. Did you get to meet Mattis? I I met him a couple times. He was not a fan of my beard and he let me know it. <laughs>
0: What a career marine four star general, not a fan of facial hair, yeah. What? Yeah, and he knew you were army special forces, so he, he he was looking for a reason to jack with you, anyways. <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> no, but he was he is very, very uh thoughtful about everything. It was, it was one of the things that was you know, sort of touching on, on one of the things that we talked about earlier in terms of how things are portrayed in media and social media. I mean, here's one of the most thoughtful guys I've I've ever come across and he's really diving deep on a lot of these issues and making sure that he considers every sort of angle before he makes a decision. Right. I mean, for him, I think he, like what he cared about most was the the lethality of the force, which I think is for the department of defense is a completely reasonable aim. And so that was the lens through which he viewed a lot of these, these, these issues, but the the media would sort of take a grain of truth and, and, expand it with a lot of assumptions and, and sort of call into question like what he was thinking about it without actually ever knowing what he was actually thinking about it. It was sort of like really the first time where I sort of had this exposure where I was kind of like, all right, I'm intimately familiar with what's actually going on behind this article. And you've gotten it. I, I see the grain of truth here. And then I see all of this other stuff that you just made a story around that grain of truth. And And none of that stuff is right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I obviously president Trump would call it fake news. I mean, I, I I get it right. It's, it's, I can only imagine how hard it is for the, for the news business for journalists, right? You have to, you're selling news to consumers. Like you have to sell ads. You have to sell subscriptions. Like you have to produce content that people want to consume. And you know, nowadays, the more sensational, the better. And, and the more you can evoke a reader's or a viewer or a listener's emotions, the more you're going to be able to sell.
0: Through right or wrong versus disagreeing. Right, exactly. So it's kind of funny is listening to you talk about this, being at Boston Consulting Group, going through, you know, helping the transition team if someone were to say you don't have any D.C. experience, that would be actually quite inaccurate. You've got actual experience of not just from the military side of what you did in the military, but this transitioning as a civilian, helping a transition team and learning a lot of how things may or may not work yeah. in D.C. Because you often hear that people go, well, you know, when you get in, are you a D.C. insider, or drain the swamp, whatever, whatever the comments are that come out? but people often attack go, well you don't know how dc works I, I, listen to this it sounds like you got a pretty good education on how a lot of things work
1: i definitely got a good education right and and well one of the things that drives me nuts and i think drives a lot of people nuts about politicians is people that say i'm not a politician or say things like you know i i accomplished xy and z in in my time in the government and i i don't want to misrepresent it like look i i'm running for political office i am a politician i served in the Trump administration. I think maybe technically that makes me some kind of a politician. I was in an appointed role working for an elected official, right? Served at the pleasure of the president. But like, I I don't want to misrepresent, you know, what I did in the, in the Trump administration there. You know, I, it was really to get things started to keep, keep things sort of like moving forward, make sure that we had a good sort of transition to get, get folks in. You know, I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't responsible for any sort of like Trump's big policy initiatives or big defense department initiatives, but I did get a good to your point. I got a good lesson in how these things worked and and what sort of goes on behind the scenes, what gets reported on, what sort of happens up on the hill when there's sort of these legislative liaisons from all these agencies, the, the interplay between the executive and the legislative branch and, and how all that sort of works. So yeah, I got a good, a good lesson in a lot of that. And, and so I do have, I do have experience there. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So you finish this segment. What do you go do then? So finish this, this. So at that time, so we'd just been working constantly, my
1: wife and I, she was at a law firm, which she, and she enjoyed being there, but we were working so many hours. We never got to see the kids. We never got to really sort of live in the way that, that our values sort of told us we wanted to live. Right. So we, she had a job offer actually in Dallas and we were like, let's do it. Let's go move to Dallas. I I don't know that we moved. We knew a whole, I don't know. I think we knew two people, two people in, in Texas at the time. And, and they were like, it's great. Come on down. We're like, all right, enough said. So she accepted the job. We moved down here. We've been down here for about four years now. And, and we love it you know we have so much more time to spend with our family it's it's incredible right because look people people work hard here but there's more of that sense of values around balance in in your values like hard work is important but family is also important and community is important and all of these other things and and so it really, really allowed us to get back to sort of our values. That that was something that we felt was missing in our life when we lived in the D.C. area, and so we've loved it in Texas since we moved here, and we're never, never going back. I don't think we're ever leaving. Yeah, it's been, it's been great. And so, yeah, I started off here, uh, did corporate strategy roles because that's sort of my experience. Did corporate strategy at Southwest Airlines. I'm actually now at J.P. Morgan Chase. I, I did take an Define operational. Define
0: what corporate strategy means for the.
1: Yeah. So corporate strategy is, you know, you a lot of times there are really big sort of sticky, complicated problems that companies have, particularly big companies. Right. You, you think about, you know, the, the number of employees. I think Southwest has I, I don't even know how many employees, but it, it's big. And when you get that big, you get very bureaucratic, similar to the U.S. government. Right. When when things get big, they get bureaucratic and getting stuff done gets much more complicated, right? And so there's often strategy teams that'll either be come in from a firm outside or exist within the business itself that will help sort of put structure around those problems and figure out a path forward on how to solve them. And so you get to solve or or help solve the most complicated problems that these companies have. You know, anything from... Hey, our bureaucracy is operating really inefficiently. Is there a way to organize our people better so that we can operate more efficiently and deliver for our customers or patients or whatever whatever the business is? Is there a a way that we can improve this process so that the customer experience is better, right we We know this is an area where customer experience is bad like What are some options? Like, what would the cost of those options be? Like help leaders make decisions that are really, really hard around like sort of ambiguous things. And so that was, I mean, that's, that's corporate strategy. It's, it's super interesting. It's, you get to help solve a lot of problems. And I say help solve because in the end, you're not really making the decision on how to solve it. You're recommending an option or a set of options to somebody who's making the decision. And then usually you're not the one to implement it. And that's the only thing I think I, I haven't really loved about corporate strategy is I haven't had the ability to sort of own it and own the solution and, and sort of deliver it. It's interesting in this, this campaign, you know, I get to be, it's, it's much more entrepreneurial and I get to be sort of the CEO of my campaign. And, and every day there's a whole number of, of decisions. There's a ton of ambiguity. There's a, obviously there's a number of competitors. What are the competitors doing? How do we respond? it's it's really cool to be able to take that corporate strategy experience and apply it to what i'm doing today but have very real ownership over the problems and the decisions that i make and the implementation of of those strategies and i mean i think it does parallel pretty well to the government right there's a lot of really complicated problems that we have in the united states today right and none of none of the things that that we talk about these days are really simple and we need to Be able to frame those problems accurately, understand the root cause, and then understand what what levers we can pull to actually do something about it, and then go and build consensus around that, and go and do it. And I think that's one of the other assets that I have that I would bring to the to the role. I think that's, you know, for me. I mean, this is really why I think I'm a I'm a you know the best candidate for this because you know, I, I have those lessons in leadership from the military. I have, you know, the, the I, I take on ambitious challenges head on and I make sure that I'm successful. I will work hard, fight through whatever I need to fight through to do it and, and, you know, achieve success there, like even in, in spite of potential failures right along the way. And then I have, you know, this corporate strategy experience that really lends itself to being able to solve complicated problems and all that's left now is complicated problems. There's nothing, there's no no brainers left. So we're at that point where we need to solve things that are really complex.
0: Did you always think you would run for office or did that come up when Ron White's spot came open? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: So one of the things that I've missed since hanging up the uniform is really that's one that sense of service and two sort of that level of responsibility and accountability for for people and i think i discounted probably when i got out how much that was important to me and now as i'm you know years into my into my private sector career this you know representative right passed away tragically and it's a situation where there's there's no sort of incumbent, there's no, you know, definite steer on on who should be in the this seat. so it, it it seemed like an opportunity to get back into service and and help people and represent people's interests. And for me, you know I felt like I sort of needed to to take that step and and really, Try to make an effort, especially with how things have been going lately. I mean, I I think maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, probably not, not really on my radar, but just with the way things have been going, I I just feel sort of like I did back on nine 11. Like we need people to step up and try to make a difference. And
0: that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. So as we wind this episode up here, I want to go back and. Ask a question. Not that I keep trying to kick you for you know the ranger school. Yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to throw salt in the wound. I think that after listeners have listened to this episode and hearing about your journey, do you think that your path would have been the same had you passed ranger school, or do you think not passing ranger school, going to your unit, the lessons you learned. Caused you to rethink. And then does that question make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah. 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 So and talk, I, walk me through that.
1: No, and I've definitely, th- this has been something I've said many, many a time for me. I think had I passed ranger school, but by, by some stroke of luck, it would have baked in those bad habits that would have made me unsuccessful down the road. I think that failure showed me that I had some things to work on and it got me to work on those things. And if I hadn't worked on those things, there is no way I would have been successful down the road without a doubt that failure in particular and, and other failures as well, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, and for the audience listening, I mean, that's, that's why I look, I'm not a political commentator or anything else. I, I, I wanted to have you on because one, you're a fellow vet. We know Jamie Peace; he has great hair. But it was getting to know you since Jamie introduced you uh, introduced you and I was, you know, at first you know Jamie was like, "Hey, you need to meet Mike." Number one, you have to understand audiences. Jamie Peace says, "You need to meet this guy." Jamie only likes like five humans on the planet, and he goes, "Look, he went <laughs> to Wharton. He's a uh, you know former Green Beret." He's running for office and Jamie knows that I, I don't really just get politically involved or connected for many, many reasons. And when he said that, I was like, oh, OK, well, that comes with a pretty, you know, Jamie's somebody that I'll, I'll say on the show, but I'll never tell him to his face because I can't be nice to him and to his face, is that I have a high level of respect for Jamie, who also was in the Marine Corps, recon, MARSOC special operations. Went to Wharton. I had Buddy Peterson in here for a recorded episode that he actually, Jamie, recruited Buddy to be the CEO. So he didn't like his boss. So he went and found a new boss and <laughs> got the board to approve that and then transitioned and moved on to become a CEO himself of another company. So when Jamie, Jamie speaks with purpose and he doesn't say something just to say something. So I was like, okay. And then over the course of time, you and I having conversations and getting to know each other is one of the things that did jump out in me is if any of the other candidates that are running, mm-hmm. they really should come do something like this. Not, not on my show because one's good enough because I really don't want to be reinforcing that people go, I thought you don't do this. I'm not a political commentator, but they really should do this because, and that was one of the first things that you and I talked about. And I says, yeah, I, yes. Yeah, so, you know what issues someone stands on, you know, what side of the aisle they stand on, you know, he, you know this, you know that, but big deal is who's, who is behind, you know, right. the the face yeah. of somebody that's going to be up there representing our interests and making us a better country. And then naturally you and I've had a lot of conversations less on issues, but mm-hmm. more on how to address issues. And, right. and one of the things that I think a lot of people, not just people, not just people running for office, but I mean- executives and everything else are, are, are so terrified to like open a kimono and go, Hey, I've made mistakes before. And guess what? I'm probably going to make more. But if you haven't learned the tools and assets of what to do with those mistakes that you make to go turn those, you know, failures into wins, then basically you're at a stopgap. And then as Buddy Peterson would say is then they rule out of fear. So now they're in there in D.C. and they're making decisions based on fear rather than problem solving. And you've spent your whole military career and even up through, you know, present day problem solving and, you know, turning this into dialogue. And that's why I wanted to have you on is, you know, less on you running for the office of more of you're you're someone that knows how to do this. So I I really appreciate you opening it up. And I think that anybody that listens to this, if they haven't, God, how many people y'all have running? It's
1: 23 total candidates.
0: 23. And the election is when?
1: May 1st. Elections on May 1st. Yep.
0: May 1st. So this episode is dropping about mid-April because we record in bulk. So it'll, it'll come out here in the next few weeks before a couple of weeks for the, the, the election itself. And, you know, what, you know, it, it, it's just that The other candidates will have an opportunity to now express doing the same thing, but will they? And if they don't, I think this gives you a competitive advantage, you know, because you got, hey, this is who I am. Here was my journey. He gets where I am. So with all that being said, we go back to 20-year-old self, uh, the million things we would tell ourselves. But if there was that one that 20-year-old self could actually hold on to, because we don't know the 20-year-old self, but listen to what we would say today. What if that 20-year-old self, 20-year-old Mike Egan, what is that one nugget that, that 20-year-old self should take away from what you've learned in life here? I mean, the thing that,
1: the thing that I would tell myself is don't be afraid of failure, use failure. Uh, and And learn from it and and get better. I think that maybe before nine eleven I was not I was somewhat risk averse, wasn't someone that was maybe willing to put myself out there. but I think that you know, having having been on this side of of things over the last twenty years that I would say you know things are worth the risk despite the failures you may encounter across the way, but make sure that you learn from those failures and make yourself better.
0: Sound advice from someone who's been through the roller coaster of ups and downs. So people want to learn more about you, your campaign, how to donate, how to help volunteer, any of that. How, what, where do they go? What do they do?
1: Yeah. So if you visit EganforCongress.com, all of that is on there. So it has the my my view on the issues, it has buttons to donate. You can donate right there. It has you know all all sorts of information about the election and stuff like that the you know elections on may 1st early voting starts april 19th uh, so folks can start early voting in person here in the 6th district and so yeah that's that's it
0: man so for the listeners that might not be in a place where they could write all that down always remember you can go to the website www.myexperiencedrealtor.com. that's experienced with an ed com. click on podcast Go down to Mike Egan's episode, click on read more, and it'll have all the links that he just described. Mike, thanks for coming on, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Great experience. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Uh, I really hope I can help folks out. Yeah. Oh, I but, man, I believe you. I Absolutely. Believe you. I appreciate it. Man. Yeah.